0: Well, good evening, everyone. I hope everyone had a, a great day today and had an opportunity to go and to uh, worship the Lord. And, and again, just want to remind you if you have prayer requests or prayer concerns, that you can put them down in the comments, and we'll be sure to pray for those. We pray for all of our prayer requests every Wednesday night and every Sunday morning uh, at church, at least, and then in private time and our own time as well. I just want to let everybody know trying a new format tonight with some new equipment that the church was uh, gracious enough to uh, gift us for pastor appreciation to help with these videos and so you guys got to let me know if you can even hear me because I I really don't know if you can or not (laughs) right right now I'm here by myself so I don't know if if I have anyone here to uh, help me know that you are hearing me but i'm doing this on facebook live and i'm also recording it for my podcast so uh, hopefully one of the two will will work and just uh, by way of uh, advertisement i guess you could say uh, on the podcast if you haven't gone and found it it's rk ministries you can find it on any platform that has podcasts apple google spotify just about anybody does podcasts you can find it and if you would just go and like it and subscribe to it and we do uh, sermons on there every Sunday morning. I put the sermon up from that Sunday. And uh, just this uh, yesterday, we done, I done a podcast on uh, Christian nationalism. That's been a word that's been thrown around of late. And so if you're interested in those kinds of things, you can go listen to that podcast. And if there are other topics that you would be interested in talking about other than the Bible studies and the sermon uh, sermons that we do, then you just let me know and we will deal with those from a biblical uh, perspective. So for tonight, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. We're uh, dealing with the, the penultimate letter to the churches, the second to last letter to the churches, the church uh here that we're going to be dealing with today is philadelphia be reading verses 7 through 13 for our text but let me just pray right quick for us and then we will jump into the study tonight father thank you for this time thank you for the opportunity i pray father that you would use it to strengthen us and that you would use it to uh, increase our understanding of who you are and what it is that you're doing in this world and how we ought to live in light of that and just be with us tonight as we study in Jesus' name, Amen. So, Romans chapter seven, or excuse me, Rome, uh, Revelation chapter three, uh, verse seven uh, through thirteen. I'm just going to read the letter, and then we'll come back and, and we'll we'll talk about uh, the letter. The Bible says, "And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these things." Saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. He that openeth, and no one shutteth, and shutteth, and no one openeth. I know thy word, thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the the word of my patience, uh, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the whole world to try them that dwell on the earth. Behold, I, I come quickly, hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown, Him that overcome, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith, to the churches and as always we begin with just a little bit of introductory matter and if you remember we're on this we're on this trade route these seven churches are located on a on a trade route a prominent trade route a postal route um, and all of them find themselves usually on uh, the interchange or intersection of that major trade route and so we have made our way up the uh, the Aegean coast on the eastern side of uh of turkey and then we have come inland some you know 30 to 50 miles depending on the city that you are in and then we're making our way back down uh uh, toward where we started from in ephesus in a kind of a a horseshoe type manner and so that's the layout of these particular churches this particular church the church of philadelphia and i probably will not pronounce this name correctly but um Al-seer, uh a-l-a-s-e-h-i-r is the modern day uh, name of the city that represents this location on on the map it is about 30 miles west northwest of sardis uh, and because of its location and its prominence on this trade route it it had become known by the the euphemism the gateway to the east so it was a prominent place a prominent city had a lot of prominent uh wealth going on in the city and it was a it was a major thoroughfare for uh commerce that came through and they they had agricultural commerce they had um more commercial, industrial type, you know, for their era, uh, industrial type commerce that were there. They were known for the fertile valleys, uh, it was on some volcanic uh, land that was uh, quite well for growing grapes, it was called the burnt land, and the name Philadelphia came because of Atlas, A-T-T-A-L-U-S, the second, who... His brother oh, was thought to be dead and ultimately came back and he surrendered the kingdom uh, to his brother for love of his brother. But anyway, it's because of how much he loved his brother. He got the nickname Philadelphus, lover of his brother, and that kind of stuck with the city later on. It became na- It became known as Philadelphia, and we know Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Our Philadelphia in the United States has the same name and it was also uh religiously kind of like uh athens if you remember when paul went to mars hill in 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 athens uh there, there was just a plethora of gods you know statues to all sorts of of gods and paul picked up on that and when he went into the epicurean and stoic philosophers he started his sermon or his speech to them dealing with the this statue or this idol to this unknown god and he started from that place and brought them to the one true and living god and ultimately to jesus christ and the resurrection and so when he got to the resurrection you know the chaos ensued because that caused uh, those uh, many of those people said hey there's no such thing as a res- resurrection what's this crazy guy talking about but anyway so they had a plethora philadelphia had a plethora of religious activity that went on there a lot of temples a lot of festivals uh that went on in philadelphia so you can imagine again you you have pressures from the the uh, cultic paganistic worship that were there with all the temples and the gods and they're probably chief god that they worshipped was dionysus uh, because of their agriculture and and, in the industry uh that was there they later also uh were granted the privilege of being an um a warden of the temple for the emperor cult And while that wasn't a very prominent thing necessarily in the first century, it it was something that was growing and growing in the first century. And we've already talked about many of these cities uh, had emperor cult, um, you know, temples that were going on there. And in these, uh, because of the emperor cult, you know, Caesar is Lord. That would cause pressure on Christians who would not bow to Caesar as Lord. But, uh Philadelphia was very similar they had several several pressures like that on the outside for the church and another big pressure that we're going to learn about as we get into the text is the Jews the Jews there were were very brutal to the church in Philadelphia and so much so that they would cast out uh, any any Jew who became a Christian they would excommunicate them from uh, the synagogue and and uh, it would impact their livelihood in that in that city and so the lord's going to point out all of those things and use some encouraging words to help encourage the christians in their situation in philadelphia and so there's some interesting things that we can talk about in this letter and so in the letter we always have a common pattern a common outline there's the prologue where the lord introduces himself as the speaker usually drawing from part of the vision that john saw of the risen lord in chapter one and uh, and then that had to do and had to do with something that was going on in the life of the church either positively or negatively or it had something to do with the lord using it to encourage them because of who he is by contrast to what was going on in the city in which they which they live now there generally after the prologue there is a Um, commendation which we have here and then there's usually a rebuke of some kind this is what I have against you well we don't see that in this particular church there's no uh, rebuke in this church at all for anything that the Lord had against them so in that sense is pretty much positive commendation and then some encouraging words for them for what is about to happen in the near future and so it's one of the few I think there's one other that was was kind of like that And so in the prologue we begin and uh, I read earlier from the King James and what I'm going to be reading from my notes is in the ESV. Not that there's major differences there, it's just I didn't have my ESV with me. So I found my King James and brought it out to read the text in. And so we begin in verse 7 in the prologue and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia right. And, of course, we've talked about the issue of this angel that is mentioned in every one of the letters. Uh, you know, probably, in my uh, personal opinion, is probably the, the physical elder bishop human leader in that church because the lord is seen to walk amongst these candlesticks these churches and he holds these you know holds them in his hand so in that sense i think that this would refer at least the context to me seems to make it more appropriate to look at it as the earthly uh physical uh elder of the church rather than an angelic being who has been assigned to the church where there are other people that that make the other argument uh as well but the lord's writing to this church and in particular to this angel to this church to disseminate the information if you will to the rest of the church then he describes himself in uh basically there are three um two two descriptions uh, but three uh phrases that uh, help us understand this this description of the lord jesus christ he says the words of the holy one and the true one and again not not to get too far ahead of ourselves but i think that that is again uh foreshadowing the comments that he's going to make about these Jews who say they are Jews or not. They lie. They're of the synagogue of Satan. So in contrast, these Jews who lie about their uh, relationship with God, if you will, being the true people of God, if you will, they, they're they lying about that where Jesus says, I am holy and I am true. I, I don't lie. Uh, so my word is sure where their word is not sure. And again, a lot of that has to do with the treatment of the Jews. Jews to the Christians, uh, in particular the Jewish Christians, being excommunicated from the uh, synagogue as really uh, heretics or uh, idolaters, probably because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this idea of the Holy One, you know, we we've seen this kind of language used before in in the Bible, in in particular, I think it's uh, Isaiah's call. where he sees the Lord high and lifted up. Uh, and and he sees the train of his robe fill the temple, and we have the the three living creatures who are flying amongst uh, the temple scene there, the the throne room scene, and they they cry out, holy, 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 you know, the Lord God Almighty. And so that 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 kind of language is typically associated with God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and here Jesus uses that of himself the holy one and I don't think there's any um uh, there's no doubt that he is he is equating himself in that sense as divine the divine one uh, equating himself with the Father, the first person of the, the the Trinity. He is equally divine. And we know that from other places in the scripture, right? In Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11, where Paul uses the humility of Jesus, the humbleness of Jesus as an example for us, that we should have this mind that is in Christ Jesus, right? And then he goes on to talk about how Christ humbled himself. He he emptied himself in the sense, and he came, stepped out of heaven, stepped into humanity. And Jesus, you know, in that text, it says, that it it wasn't he didn't count it robbery depending on your translation he didn't count it robbery or he didn't count it something to be grasped for to be equal with god the implication is he was already equal with god because he's the second person of the trinity so this is i think is a a declaration of the divine nature of jesus christ as the the one true living god the second person of the trinity and then the phrase the true one Right. Jesus said in John's gospel, John records Jesus as saying, uh, I think it's in John 14, I am the way, the truth and the life. Uh, So, again, these are not new words that are associated with Jesus. He is the truth. Right. He is the ultimate truth of God. And he is the manifestation of who God is in uh, human flesh for us to see. And we know about him because of the word that he has given us that we call Uh, the bible so this is the holy and the true one as opposed to those liars and false uh those those guys who say they are one thing and are not he is the holy and the true one and again we see this idea in revelation chapter 6 and verse 10 when we get to those uh heavenly visions those throne room visions uh we're going to see that kind of language again look at look at uh, you can write it down revelation 6 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. So again, emphasizing, uh, you know, the, the divinity of the Lord, associating him with the Father in, in that way, equally divine. And then Revelation nineteen eleven, uh, John says, Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. So again, obviously, a reference to the person of Jesus Christ coming in His glory uh, for the judgment of the world at the consummation of the age, and to gather His people together with Him. Then we have this phrase in this passage: the, the, "Not only is He the word; uh, th- these are the words of the Holy One and the True." And again, um, once we get here, we, we're 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 not necessarily seeing this come from the first. Uh, from the first vision in, in chapter one when jesus is, is drawing on other images to help them understand now we see similar language to what we see in this next phrase in the first vision where he says here who, who has meaning jesus who has the key of david and in the first uh, chapter one we saw in verse 18 that he has the keys of death and hades and we'll see that again later on in uh revelation that this idea that christ has these keys to death and and hades the keys they're are keys that come to the bottomless pit um in revelation but there's something unique about this idea of the key of david and again it, it traces all the way back to isaiah and prophecies that god had made to david about the eternal kingdom about the messiah the root that's coming from the uh the shoot that's coming from the root of jesse and there'll be uh david's throne will be eternal and there'll be someone seat seated on seating on sitting on his throne for all of eternity and ultimately jesus is the fulfillment of that and so in isaiah 22 and verse 22 the bible says And I will place on his shoulders the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. Now that gets us a little bit further in the dialogue in Revelation chapter 3 because the next phrase out of Jesus' mouth when he identifies himself as the one who has the key of David, he says, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So you got to see that that is a direct reference to this uh, prophetic word in Isaiah chapter 22 uh, where the Lord really is promising that there is going to be a coming one. a a coming Messiah, an eternal king to sit on an eternal uh, throne of David, and that king has the keys to that kingdom. Okay, And so we, we see, again, that kind of language in Luke chapter 1 when it's describing Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So again, all of these are pointing to the messianic kingdom and the king of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, sitting on the throne of David. So Jesus, in that sense, is the fulfillment of this prophecy that God had made to David those many years ago in what we call the Old Testament uh, era. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is this awaited king to sit on this eternal throne and to reign and rule for forevermore now the question in this passage comes to what does it mean in these other places what does it mean when he says in isaiah 22 that he opens and no one shuts and he shuts and no one opens and in in revelation where it says the same thing uh you know <clears throat> it's going to couple with something we'll read in just a moment. Because we've we got to make a decision based on how we understand this, how we're going to understand what happens next in this text. And if you take what's happening in Isaiah, uh, it seems as though the context there has to do with his, his reign and authority over this kingdom. That he is the one who opens the door to the kingdom and shuts the door to the kingdom, if you will. These keys belong to him and him alone and no one else. And so I think that's the implication that is behind this passage. And if you take into consideration what we've already posited about these Jewish um, these synagogue of Satan and these Jews who say they are Jews but are not but lie... Uh, they're casting out these Christians, uh, you know, in in essence saying, "Hey, you're not part of the kingdom of God because you've rejected uh, the one true God to follow after this guy named Jesus." And so they have they have excommunicated them, if you will, and and cast them out as those who are not part of the kingdom. Uh, of god when in actuality it's the other way around right because those jews who will not follow christ they're on the outside of the kingdom looking in whereas these christians are actually on the inside of the kingdom looking out at these uh reprobate jews if you will and so I think that that's kind of the backdrop that jesus is laying for these believers they would understand what he's talking about in light of what was going on in their culture in that day and those who had been kicked out of the synagogue these jews had been kicked out of the synagogue because of their faith in uh, jesus christ and so that leads to this commendation which again we have to understand what he's about to say in light of what we just understood or read about uh him having the keys to the kingdom and opening and and shutting and and those things so the commendation begins this way i know your works behold and again always say this but it bears repeating uh, hey that's both encouraging and scary right he knows our works uh, one, he knows our works even in the midst of difficulty and trial, and he is, he is ever with us and ever present to help us in those times of need. But he also knows our work and that whatever we do that is wrong, whatever we think we're hiding from him and everybody else, he knows our works because he sees all. Right. And so we get into the next phrase in this passage, which opens up uh, some debate on what he means. It says, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Um, And so what does that what does that mean? and And again, a lot of this comes with your theological, you know, the way you look at this in a theological way your your, your eschatological understanding uh it, it impacts how you believe this text i think because as we've already talked about and we, we don't have time tonight to rehash everything that we talked about in the introductory portion of revelation when it deals with you know uh the different views of eschatology and how different people come at the book of revelation but uh, we'll we'll narrow it down to you know just one, and and which is the predominant one, in which most people listen to this probably hold to, right? I'm the odd man out on this uh on this idea, but those who who hold to uh predispensational, premillennial, trib rapture of the church, in dispensational theology, one of the things that is taught as it relates to these letters to these churches while i wouldn't go so far to say that every dispensationalist would say these are not literal churches they they are i think they would believe hey these were literal churches but they would go and say well these churches represent certain dispensations of church history to use their language if you will uh certain times in church history so when you talk about ephesus that's one particular time in church history where you know they were strong in the word and and maybe they had waned a little bit in their love for the gospel of christ and uh then you got you know all these others in in their various states of faithfulness and unfaithfulness throughout the ages and the closer you get to the end uh you get to a more functional church when you get to Laodicea it is the most dysfunctional church age whereas in Philadelphia it would it would relate you know it's almost it's almost a little anachronistic for us to do it this way, really, because we would look at Philadelphia and relate it to recent, you know, history. And when I say recent, you know, within the last fifty years of of um, or a hundred years of American um, existence, where the church had boomed for a while, and it seems as though now we're we, what dispensation would say would say we're in that uh, we're in that laodicean age of, of the church where we have compromised excuse me as a as a church but i you know i i don't hold to dispensationalism because i don't think it, it, it you can prove it uh, biblically uh just because of the way jesus looks at eschatology and the way the apostles looked at eschatology and the way uh, we're finding out that john is writing about eschatology here in revelation and when you look at the Current context in which we're reading this letter, in the current cultural setting which they're in, there are things, there are events that are taking place that Jesus is speaking to in their life, in their time, in their place. And quite frankly, you can find some of all of these churches, the good and the bad, in every era of church history, even uh, today. So it, it makes no sense to try to narrow it down to that That kind of scope where you say each church represents a single point in church history Uh, these are literal churches where they had literal cultural things happening in their church around them and Jesus was addressing those things that were going on in the first century and and he was addressing them in a way to challenge the churches that were failing in areas but to encourage them to endure uh, to continue to endure patiently uh, until his coming again and we'll see that bear out in our text today so if you take the what most dispensationalists would say is, "Hey, this is the Lord saying that He's opened the door of evangelism. He's opened the door of ministry, right?" And they would think about the the era of grace, uh, in, in particular, in, in the in, in in American history, where the church, the gospel, has been able to go around the world. God's opened up a door of opportunity uh, to them. Well, you know, I think Paul kind of Paul kind of Lends to that idea of God opening doors and closing doors of opportunity in ministry. So we don't want to belittle that idea. Because if you look, I wrote down on my notes, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, where Paul is in writing to the Corinthian church, but he's talking about Ephesus, and he says, a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So there's this idea of the Lord opening doors of opportunity in ministry and closing doors of opportunity in ministry, and Paul talks about that as well. I didn't write down scripture in verse, but if you remember when Paul wanted to go to one place, the Lord closes the door, right, and wouldn't let him go to that one place and sent him over, if my memory correct uh, served me correctly, to Macedonia where there were such gentlemen who had been praying and seeking the Lord and paul was to go there and minister to him rather than where Paul wanted to go. So there is a biblical concept of God opening doors and closing doors of ministry and opportunity. but if you think if you take the context of what we're reading about in the historical and cultural context in which they were living and what Jesus was writing about, It seems more appropriate to me that Jesus was encouraging these Christians who had been kicked out of the synagogue and deemed to be uh, outside of the kingdom of God, outside of what we would call in our vernacular, the family of faith. And Jesus was saying to them, hey, don't worry about what those Jews who say they're Jews but are not are saying to you. Don't worry about the fact that they've kicked you out of the out of the synagogue and said you're not part of the kingdom jesus says hey i have the keys to the kingdom of david i have the keys to the kingdom of heaven i am the messiah i am the king of kings and lord of lords i open the door to the kingdom i shut the door to the kingdom if i open it no one can shut it if i shut it no one can open it so uh, i think that's the encouraging word that the lord is giving to this church in philadelphia that hey you're in the kingdom because i say you're in the kingdom not what these jews say it's because of me and me alone that you find yourself in the kingdom of god so take courage in that is really the implication about what he uh is saying in that passage so that's the way i take uh, verse eight and then the next phrase in this passage is uh, i know that you have but little power and again you know some people might take that to say, hey, this church doesn't have any, they, they don't have any gospel opportunity. Or maybe they haven't taken taken uh, advantage of the open door that the Lord has given them. But the Lord's given them condom, a, a commendation. There's no negative in this particular letter he's writing to this church. And so the probably the the more correct implication of that phrase is maybe this is a small church. Maybe this is a church that has just very few people because of the paganism that's rampant in that city, and the the Jewish uh, you know oppression uh, on Christianity that's going on in that particular city. And maybe it is that they have but few in power, a few in number, in that sense they're few in power and their voice is not strong as 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 having a great number to go and proclaim because the lord says just in just behind that hey i know you you have a little power okay i know you're not the biggest church you're not the you're not the you're not the mega church right i understand that but look what he says he gives them two words of commendation he says and yet even though you are small in number i believe in that sense and small in power because of that and yet you have kept my word in spite of you being a small group in spite of you being a a, a group that has has a small voice in that culture in which you live in spite of all the pressures that are against you you have kept my word and again if I had two messages to to give to people, if I could only preach two sermons, one would be the gospel, right? Uh, that, hey, you're lost, dying, and going to hell apart from Christ. You need to get saved. You need to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. It is your only hope for eternity. And the second would be, you need to be students of God's word because couched in this idea of, of uh, evangelism, it comes from the great commission right go therefore and make what disciples and that includes evangelizing people bringing them uh, to this point where they must decide what they're going to do with jesus christ and the rest of that passage says teaching them to observe all things that i've commanded you and the only way we know the all things that he's commanded is to be students of the book students of the word in that sense we are to keep his word and, and again that that is a charge throughout scripture there is no biblical biblical concept of people who can claim to be followers of christ and go out into the world and live however they want to live no when people are radically transformed by jesus christ when they are born again they're given a brand new heart it changes who they are, it changes the way they think. And they become passionate and desire to know the truth of God's word and want to live out the truth of God's word. Do we always do that perfectly? No, we don't always do that perfectly, but that is the desire of one's heart when they come to faith in Christ. And these people, although they were small in number, they were faithful in keeping God's word. So for all of those churches out there who are not mega churches, okay, you don't have Ten thousand, or five thousand, or a thousand. You don't even have, you know, two hundred. Maybe you don't even have a hundred. Maybe you don't even have fifty in your church. Here's what is success. Here's what I'm gonna tell you. What is success in God's eyes? One that you are faithful to His word, and the second is you do not deny His name. And you know what? Maybe. In our society today, just maybe if you're faithful to his word and if you don't deny his name, that might be a reason that you are small in number. Because there are so many people in our day that are compromising the word of God and denying the name of Christ to gain crowds of people. Now, I'm not saying every, per- every church that has a big crowd, I'm not saying that they're bad and they're wrong. Cause there are some churches with big crowds that are doing things that are right. Okay. But the more we follow after Christ, the more we follow after God's word, the more we preach and teach the truth and stand on the principles of what God's word say, the more opposition we will get from the world. all you got to do is look at what's happening in our world today. Okay. Cause the gospel is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. To people because they don't get it right they don't understand it uh, it takes God to regenerate in their heart open in their mind so that they can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and why it is they need to be saved so this small number of people they were faithful to the word of God and they had not denied the name of the Lord God and may that be, may that be the testimony for every one of us that we have been faithful to his word and we have not denied his name. Wouldn't that be amazing that the Lord would say that about you and would say that about me? May that be the testimony of our, of our life. No matter what men say, we're going to be faithful to God's word. We're going to be faithful to the name of Christ and not deny his name. All right, now that leads to this idea of this synagogue of Satan that we've been uh, alluding to throughout the text. Behold, he says in verse 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. And so we've seen this language about the synagogue of satan before if you remember back over in the letter to smyrna revelation 2 9 uh, he uses that same language i know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich and the slanderer of and the slanderer of those who say that they are jews and are not but are a synagogue of satan right and we've seen Jesus told the uh the religious leaders when he uh, was going about the earth in his ministry. You remember what he called those, uh, when he, what he told those religious leaders in John chapter eight verse forty-four. He says, "You belong to your father, the devil, because they were rejecting what God was manifesting to them in the Messiah that He had promised to send, and they were rejecting the very Messiah that they had been looking for," and so what is what's happening in this thing these jews again think that they have the inroad to the kingdom of god because of their ethnicity because as in jesus's day again they said hey we're the children of abraham right and, you know, Paul talks about this idea in Romans, you know, is there any advantage to the Jews? See, uh, the question the objector asked, and Paul says, certainly, they, they've been given the oracles of God. In other words, they, they ought to know uh, the gospel, they ought to know uh, the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They ought to be able to see that, but still and yet, the majority of them have rejected the Messiah and paul says there's a reason for that and we're, we're in romans yeah we're in romans right now on sunday morning in in uh at friendship baptist church over in tallacy alabama and so if you're in there, and you don't have a church home, well, come over there. We'd love to have you. Uh, but we're in Romans chapter 8. Well, we're, we're quickly getting to Romans chapter 9 here in a week or two. And in Romans chapter 9, this question is going to be raised again because Paul, Paul ends Romans chapter 8 with this great crescendo, this great doxology about who God is in our, in our, uh, and our assurance in salvation because of who God is and what he has done for us. And then the very next chapter, Paul is in a funk because he says, I would, that I would be condemned. I would be cast into hell, my, my interpretation of what he's saying. I would be cast into hell if only my brothers and sisters of the flesh, my Jewish relatives, my Jewish family, if only they would come to faith and accept the Messiah. And then the question is raised, well, is the word of God failed, Paul? Since God has done this thing in Christ Jesus, and he made these promises to Israel, has God's word failed? Because the majority of Israel is rejecting uh, the Messiah, and Paul begins to answer that in Romans chapter 9 for us. But Paul has already, in Romans chapter 2, alluded to this idea that there is something distinct about those who believe the promise of god it's not just about the flesh it's not just about ethnicity it's not just about outward circumcision it's a matter of the heart romans chapter 2 verses 28 and 29 listen for no one is a jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical but a jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter and you know there's a plethora of passages in the bible that uh talk about the Jews trying to find if you go to Hebrews they were trying to find it through their own righteousness right by obeying the law which they never could do in the first place but it's always been about a matter of the heart that's why God talks about Abraham and his faith in Romans chapter 4 it is because of the faith of Abraham long before you know uh, Moses brought the law God gave the law to Moses Abraham believed in his heart in his inner man he believed the promise of God and that was accounted to him as righteousness and all those who believe like abraham believed become the children of god and you know we know in other places in the bible that the lord talks about god breaking down this middle wall of separation separation and that he removes that animosity and he makes one man out of the two and then he talks about in galatians the true israel of god in other words i think the true Israel of God are all believers, both Jews and Gentiles. That is the true Church of the Living God. And what we've seen in history is predominantly in the Old Testament. Uh, those who are part of the family of faith in the Old Testament were primarily Jews. Right there were there were a few Gentiles who were brought in. We see some of those Gentiles in the in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. They were brought into the family of faith because of their belief in the promise of. God now the tables have turned and the and the people of God are represented primarily by Gentiles now with a few Jews who have joined in but this it's always been God's plan Jew and Gentile, to make up the family of God to make up the church the people of God and all the promises as we, we will bear out uh, some of that when we get into Romans chapter 9 10 and 11 all those promises for Israel are ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus christ and so back to where we were here these people these jews who say they're true jews they may be ethnic jews but they're not jews who have been transformed in heart they have not the inner man has not been redeemed or regenerate and therefore they reject the gospel of christ they reject the messiah so they are as jesus said of their father the devil okay Now he goes on to say in that same passage in verse nine, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So in other words, if you think about the cultural context in which this was written and what was going on with the Jews excommunicating these Christian Jews because of their faith in Christ, the Lord is saying, Hey, they can say what they want to i've got the keys to the kingdom i say you're in the kingdom because of your faith in me and what's going to happen is these jews one day they're going to come and they're going to bow down before you and worship the lord god and they're going to bow down and understand that god has in fact loved you uh, in, in that sense in the personal covenantal way of love so the table's going to be turned on them and they will see uh, the futility of their thought and their ways in that day and of course we know that there's going to be a great influx of jewish believers i believe in, toward the end time the closer we get to the coming of the lord uh, that there are going to be more and more jews who come to faith in christ in that way in a physical way a physical sense and we'll talk more about that as we go through uh this um this book uh now again i, I don't think that there is uh, a, a distinct separation as dispensational would say between what god does with jews and what god does with with the church and the reason i say that because the church is made up right now of both jew and gentile right and so there is only one true people of god and those are people that come to faith in the messiah they believe the promise of god just like abraham did and just like the the gentiles did in the new testament era and along the way in the old testament all right so these jews will ultimately come to see that god has loved uh these jews who have who have placed their faith in the messiah and then verse 10 he, and he gives a reason, because, this is the reason, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. And we've seen that. We won't trace it again through the scripture, but you can do it. Hopefully you wrote down that verses, those verses when we traced it in the introductory material and when we traced it when we first saw it in the uh, first chapter and we traced it through Revelation. I think this is a key to us understanding what god is doing with the book uh this book that he's given us we call revelation right the revelation of john the revelation of jesus christ that was given to john it is a call to patient endurance for all believers in all ages no matter the circumstances that they find themselves in because as we will find at the end this letter jesus says i'm coming quickly you can patiently endure find hope in the fact that i'm in control i'm on my throne and i am going to come and this everything that's going on that is wrong will be rectified all of those who are believers in me will be vindicated but patiently endure hang on be encouraged right take courage don't let your heart be troubled as the lord would say in the gospels as we read them and then we get to that phrase that again opens up some some ideas of discussion i will keep you from the hour of trial that is to come on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth now if you're dispensational you say ha! right there it is uh the rapture of the church right there he's going to pull them out and keep them from that hour of trial and uh, they're not going to have to be here during that tribulation period well the only problem is you know that's kind of ambiguous in the language so you don't know exactly that he's talking about a pre-trib rapture of the church you have to read that into the text to to get that from the text secondly uh, what does that say to them about the trial that they're going through currently right and then we have all of these other churches in uh, or these other churches we've read about where he calls them, just like he says here, you have been you've been patient, you've kept my word of patient endurance, and he tells other churches, continue to patiently endure. And we saw two times further in Revelation uh, hey, this is a call to patient endurance in that time so i think that we are being um a little premature and and uh and mishandling of the text if we try to impose upon that phrase this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church because we have to manipulate that into the text to get that so what does it mean that i will keep you from that hour of tr- of trial that is to come upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth so the question is is that a removing of them from the trial or is that a keeping them in the trial and it all hinges you know there's one little preposition in that and in that uh, phrase the, the preposition ek right uh, from is it is it from in the sense that i'm protecting you in the midst of it and you're protected from the wrath that's going on or is it uh i'm taking you out of i'm I'm, I'm gathering you up out of this uh, tribulation or this trial that's about to come on all of, all of the earth. Well, I think verse 10's already told us what the answer is because he's already given them a commendation. What have they been doing? They have been patiently enduring in the midst of trial that is coming. And so I think the Lord is encouraging them. Listen, I'm going to keep you in the midst of this trial until I come again. Okay. Uh, But we can look at other places that the Bible gives us some insight on how to understand this concept of what God is doing in judgment and, and what that means for we as believers and what that means for people who are lost in this world so uh the thing that we have to go back to i think is immediate context in which we're reading this book and we've already seen the lord talk to another church about trial this coming you remember the 10 10 days of trial or in about 10 days you're going to have trial and tribulation uh if you remembered in revelation 2 and 10 he says do not fear what you are about to suffer behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation and was he tell them be faithful unto death and i will give you the crown of life so is he saying to one church hey you're in it for the long haul you just got to be faithful until death all right you got to be willing to die Uh, be patiently patiently endure to the point of death okay and then saying to another church hey i'm going to take you on out of there right? I mean, it seems like it's inconsistent with what the message is in Revelation to me uh, because of this constant theme of patiently enduring that we see throughout Revelation. And God's already told one church, hey, in the midst of this trial and tribulation, uh, I'm asking you to patiently endure, to endure even to the point of death. And so what does it mean that he says, I'm going to, when in this passage, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And I think that i have uh i have made this analogy before or this comment before that sometimes we have this great uh disconnect i think when we think about eschatology and tribulation and we we are we it's not a disconnect maybe we equate we equate tribulation with a wrath okay and what we say is you know that hey believers we're not children of wrath we know that right the bible tells us we're not children of wrath but we're we're not we're never we are never seen as people who are exempt from trial or tribulation but there is a distinction between what happens to the church and what happens to those who are not the church who, do, who are those who dwell on the whole earth because that's God's wrath being poured out on those people. What about the church? It's their reaction and their rebellion against God, those people against the church that causes tribulation and persecution for the church is not god pouring out his wrath and we already have that going on today they had that going on in the first century right now the world is at enmity with god and it's at enmity with the people of god and we see that ever encroaching even into our freedom here as americans so you and i need to understand we are never going to be affected by the wrath of god but we will always be affected in some way by persecution and tribulation because of those who are enemies of god and i think god is telling us and i'm gonna give you some verses in just a moment to help us understand that the i think the thrust of scripture is we as the church we're going to be here until christ comes again and god is calling us to patiently endure in the midst of that and he's given us examples of how he's going to protect us in the midst of these trials so let me get to scripture um jesus's the lord's prayer in john chapter 17 Listen to what Jesus says in John 17:5, and it relates to this idea of keeping them from something. It doesn't necessarily mean to have uh, that He's taking them out, but he is keeping them protected from a t- particular aspect of tribulation and trial in the midst of uh, what is going to come. Look at, listen to Jesus in John 17:5 in, in the midst of this prayer. He says, "My prayer." is not that you meaning the father take them meaning his disciples out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one now that's jesus praying about those who believed in him those who were followers of his in that day and the days to come everyone who would come to faith in christ he's saying to the father prior to his death burial and resurrection prior to him being crucified he's saying to the father Father, I'm not saying for you to take them out of the world, but I am asking you to protect them from the evil one while they're in the midst of the world and all the things that are going on in this world. So that is an implication of us sometimes suffering in this world, but God is going to see us through even in the midst of that suffering. And his particular prayer was to protect us from the evil one. Then you got Mark thirteen nineteen through 20. Mark 13, 19 through 20. For in those days there will be, in us, the last days, the eschaton that we're talking about here in Revelation. In, in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation uh, that God created until now and never will be. So it's going to be a bad time. Okay, It's going to be a bad time in those days. Nothing like we've ever seen before. And if the Lord had not cut short the day, no human being would, would would be saved. But, and here's the important phrase, but for the sake of the elect, he's called out once, for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. Now the idea is, or at least to me the implication is, Hey, you're going to be in the midst of this, but I've shortened those days because if I would have let them go uh, longer, no one would be saved, but I've shortened them for your sake because the implication is you're going to be there. You're going to be in the midst, but he's telling this church. And I think that the book of scripture is telling us that God is going to protect us in those days, right? And we, we've seen this in scripture already. What happened in the days of Noah? Did God take them out of the flood? No. He protected them through the flood, right? In the midst of the flood. When God was pouring his wrath out on the the world, guess what was happening to Noah and his family for 120 years? They were being persecuted. They were being ridiculed. They were being made fun of for what they were doing. And God protected them in the midst of his wrath being poured out. And what about the children of Israel over there in Goshen, right? In Egypt. When all those plagues come on the nation of Israel, what happened in Goshen? Well, nothing, right? The Lord protected them from his wrath in those days. The only plague that impacted israel was the plague of the firstborn uh if if they didn't put the blood on the doorpost and the lentils then the destroyer would come in and destroy the firstborn it would kill the firstborn but god gave them a means of protection in the midst of that wrath and what was the means it was the blood of the lamb on the door and the lord says to them there, I think it's in, in Exodus chapter twelve. But the Lord says to them, "Whenever I see the blood, I will come down in front of the door. I will swoop down in front of the door and not allow the destroyer to come in." So God protected them even in the midst of that pouring out of His wrath on the nation of Israel, and we've seen that uh, in in Scripture there. And again, we don't have time to turn to all these verses but uh i want you to write them down and you can trace this through revelation because the implication in revelation this phrase those who dwell on the earth these are the enemies of god these are the enemies of the people of god uh, the church so these people that god is pouring out this wrath on they're the enemies all those who dwell on the earth they're the enemies of god okay so write down these verses revelation six ten, revelation eight thirteen. Revelation eleven ten, Revelation Revelation thirteen, eight, and Revelation thirteen fourteen, Revelation seventeen, eight and hopefully that'll give you the flavor of this this identity of those who uh dwell on the earth when god uses that language in revelation he's talking about his enemies that will be given over to his wrath and not his people that he will preserve his people he will protect his people in the midst of that time now that doesn't mean that we won't experience persecution from the enemies of god We've always, we've always experienced persecution from the enemies of God. We're experiencing persecution from the enemies of God today. Maybe not so much so in America to this point, but all around this world, there are people who are experiencing persecution from the enemies of God by losing their life, losing their land, losing their livelihood. So don't ever think that the church is immune from tribulation. The church has always been involved, uh, are being persecuted somewhere on this planet. We've just been in a nice oasis for over 200 years as American Christians. And we don't see uh, the, the persecution that goes on around the world. And then the Lord says to them, I am coming soon. And again, that's an encouragement to the Philadelphians. Right. He's used that phrase about his coming before in Revelation to several of the churches uh, in a way that, hey, I'm going to come and, and I'm going to come and judge you if you don't repent. There's some things that I have against you and I'm going to come and discipline you, if you will. In Ephesus, he says, I'm going to remove the lampstand. In chapter two and verse five. In Pergamum, I'm gonna fight against you with the sword of my mouth, in chapter two, verse sixteen. In Sardis, he says, He will come like a thief in the night in judgment, uh, in chapter three and verse three. But for Philadelphia, I think this is a this is meant to be an encouragement, right? In the midst of what's about to happen, in this this trial that's going to come, I am coming quickly so continue to faithfully endure to be to patiently endure because i'm coming quickly right it, it, my, my return is imminent you know, and that's why I, I have shifted into, uh, amillennialism as, uh, as an understanding of eschatology because I think there's only two ways you can have an imminent return of Christ. It is either dispensationalism or it's amillennialism. And because I don't believe the Bible teaches dispensationalism, there only is one choice for me and that's amillennialism. And he says, hold fast what you have. And may that be what we do as believers and followers of Christ, that we hold fast what it is that God has given us, even in the midst of trial uh, and persecution, trials and persecution that come our way. So I think it's meant to be an encouragement to the Lord. And he says to do this so that no one will seize your crown or your reward because all of us will be rewarded by the things we do right paul tells us that those things that are wood hay and stubble they're going to burn off those things that are precious metals precious stones jewels uh, they will last but you know what we're going to do with whatever crown we get we're going to cast that crown at the feet of jesus christ whenever we see him face to face because there's nothing in us that deserves those crowns it's all about who he is and what he's done for us And then to wrap this up, we got the promise that comes to us. The promise is in verses 12 and 13. And again this is that familiar pattern now it shifted right about after the third letter it was he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and then the promise well here the he who has an ears at the end verse 13 again we talked about that right uh, it is this idea that God opens up the ears of people to hear and again we won't trace all that back out but you need to go read John chapter 6 you need to go read John chapter 10 about Jesus saying those who are my sheep they know my voice they hear my my voice right the reason that those jewish people were not believing in that day is because they didn't hear right they didn't hear the voice they were not his sheep okay they were not of his fold um and the same thing in john chapter 6 the lord's telling us hey uh, God, you, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you, and the Father's going to draw. How is He going to draw? He's going to draw by teaching you His Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And those who hear and learn will come to faith in Jesus Christ. So there's something about this hearing and learning. That's why my favorite passage in uh, the Bible uh, in Romans is Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So what do we need to do more of? We need to proclaim more of the word of God so that people can hear and that hearing God can use to bring about faith in people's life so this promise verse 12 and it's several things he says in this promise to the one who conquers remember uh write down that's the same word in the uh, uh where we get the word nike uh, uh victor okay and write down john chapter first john chapter five uh, beginning in verse one read what john wrote about this very issue this conquering and overcoming only those who come to faith in christ are the ones who conquer and overcome so this, that's who the conquerors are the one who conquers and that conquering is borne out by those who persevere to the end, right? That, that's really the evidence that you have come to faith in Christ where you ultimately persevere to the end, okay? And the persevering doesn't save you, but you being saved, uh, the evidence of that is that you do persevere. And so he goes on to say, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And look at the next phrase, never shall he go out of it. What is the Lord saying? He's tying this all together. He's taking us all the way back up to verse uh, seven. You remember in verse seven, he says, hey, I have the keys to David, right? I have the keys to the kingdom. I open and no one shuts or I shut and no one opens. What is he saying to these? Hey, be encouraged. Don't worry about what these Jew, these false Jews are saying to you. These, these liars who say they're Jews, but they're of the synagogue of Satan. Don't, don't, don't worry about them saying that you've been excommunicated because you, you uh, followed after Christ. What Christ is saying is, listen, I'm going to make you a pillar in the kingdom of God. You, you're going to be part of the foundation of the kingdom of God, and you will never go out. Why? Not because of who you are, but because of what Christ has done and what Christ has said about who you are. And so he's using that as an encouragement to them that you are secure in me, no matter what these lying, false Jews say. And then he goes on to say, and I will write on him the name of my God. And again, not so we can cut down the times, already in an hour and some odd minutes so when cut down on the time write these verses down we talk about this name of god and this name of god being associated with those who are his people revelation 7 3 talk about those revelation is the sealing of god's people okay and then revelation fourteen one and revelation 22 4 all have to do with this aspect of god's name and association with those who are who belong to god so it's really saying that hey when he writes his name on us that we belong to Him, right? That's how we're sealed. God's name is written on us. We we belong to Him in His kingdom. Now, there's a passage. I think it's in Isaiah. I can't remember. You can go Google it and find it. But it talks about the Lord inscribing us on the palm of His hand. Isn't that Isn't that beautiful? And so not only has he inscribed us on the palm of his hand, he has inscribed his name on us, that we belong to him. We have been sealed in him. Then he gives this other promise to them. And not only is he going to write the name of my God, he says, I'm going to write the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. And again, that speaks of our citizenship in the kingdom of God. Don't worry about what these Jews say. Hey, I'm going to make you a pillar in the house of the Lord. Not only am I going to make you a pillar in the house of the Lord, they've kicked you out of the synagogue. Don't worry about that. I'm going to write the name of my God on you right you're going to be sealed with the name of my god and not only that i'm going to write the name of the city of my god the new jerusalem on you to verify not only that you belong to god but you are a citizen of the kingdom of god which they have said you belong you don't belong to don't worry about that because i've declared you to be a child of god and a citizen of the kingdom of god in this new jerusalem that's coming uh down uh, Galatians 4:26 but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother what is it saying we we belong to the New Jerusalem because of the God of the New Jerusalem as believers in Christ Philippians 3:20 but we are citizens in heaven and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ and again the next. The next phrase is not only am I going to make you a pillar in the house of God and you're not going to go out. I'm going to write the name of my God on you. I'm going to write the name of the city of my God on you. You belong to God. You're citizens in this kingdom. You're part of the f- structure of this family of faith. And then he says, Jesus said, I'm going to write my own name on you. Wow. Not only that, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are are unequivocally identified with Jesus Christ because we are pillar in the in the kingdom of god in the in the new jerusalem the new city of god we have the name of god written on us we we have our citizenship um, validated because we have the name of this new city written on us and we have our relationship with christ validated because we have his name written on us and so what is god saying to these philadelphians don't worry about these false jews who have said they have kicked you out of the kingdom of god because you have rejected their truth and you followed after christ in fact because you have followed after christ you are a citizen of the kingdom of god you are joint heirs with jesus christ and there's nothing that can remove you from that place and that status in your life so This is a book of encouragement, right? For believers in every generation, because what was said about the Philadelphians is the same thing that God says about you and me as believers of Christ today. So no matter what goes on in this world around you, hey, Tuesday, we're going to go and vote, right? And half of us are going to be mad no matter what happens on Tuesday, right? Half of this country is going to be mad. I'm here to tell you, I'm going to vote my conscience. I'm going to vote based on God's word. I'm going to vote to end the depravity that's in this world to the best of my ability. With, the, with that uh, tool that I have. But no matter what happens on Tuesday, I know that I serve a risen savior who is seated on his throne, who is in control and who will not be caught by surprise by whatever happens on Tuesday. And I will continue on Wednesday doing what God had called me to do on Tuesday. And that is to proclaim his word because that's the only hope for this world and for me to patiently endure through whatever takes place in this world until God calls me home or until christ comes again and may that be uh, an encouragement for you today so I, I thank you for listening and hope this will be a blessing to you we've got one more letter to one more church in laodicea uh, that we'll talk about and then we'll move into uh, the some more of the visions uh in the book of revelation that'll be some interesting discussion and, and topics and remember we're coming at this from a uh it's a recapitulation kind of idea. The way I'm coming at these visions is every one of these visions are telling us the same story from a different perspective. And each one of them is shedding a new little bit of light and information on the on these stories. So so it's helping us understand more clearly what God is doing in redemptive history all the way until the culmination of the age. So I hope you'll stick with us on this. And again, uh, go to the podcast, find it, like it, subscribe to it pass it on to your friends get them to do the same and really if you if you're in our area and and you don't have a church home come to friendship baptist church in Tallahassee. we'd love to have you to be a part of our uh, family of faith that is there so you guys have a blessed evening and a blessed a blessed week